on one verse in my studies, and I felt it was really, really, really important to just stop and zero in on. So I'll touch on the rest of the chapter very quickly, but the bulk of our time is going to be spent in one verse, verse 10, to be specific. And the main reason for that is that when I look around, I see tired people. I'll explain what that means as the message goes along, but it seems with increasing alarm that the people that I talk to, um, people that I care about greatly are somewhat on the spectrum between crispy, worn out, heavy laden, exhausted, or in full on burnout mode. And it concerns me for a couple of reasons, uh, numerous, but I'll just name a few. I love you guys, and, and it pains me to see people that I love fizzling out and running on steam. It concerns me on a personal level because I'm no stranger to the principles that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. And it concerns me on a pastoral level because simply put, this is not what Jesus intended for us. He didn't pay such a great price to set us free so that we could begin walking in a new form of bondage. And it's not unique to this body. I travel quite a bit helping out the different church plants in our network, and I see it everywhere I go, but I'm not called to pastor everywhere I go. I'm called to shepherd the flock here at Redeemer Fellowship of Tom's River, and I feel that this passage could be of the utmost importance to many of the people in the local assembly that God has privileged me to shepherd. And I know that it's important for me anyway. So let me pray, and then we'll dig in. God, I thank you for a verse that just rocked my soul this week. I pray that your spirit would do a mighty work, or that you would take your truth and magnify your son. And we might leave here having tasted Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So first off, before I get to that verse, let me explain a couple of the big points of the chapter and highlight a couple of points. You know, Ecclesiastes, kind of like the book of Proverbs, is one of those books where the chapters do not necessarily always carry with it and a singular overall overarching theme to it. For the most part, the chapters of the Bible, I'm going to teach you a little bit of what we call hermeneutics, biblical interpretation principles. The chapters of the Bible are generally made up of some sort of general theme. So for example, you could go thematically to the whole book of Romans. And if you knew just the different meta-narratives, the different themes of each chapter, it would serve you well. You would know that chapter one is saying that the whole world is shut up under sin. And chapter two is saying that even the religious do not get an exemption from sin because of their religion. And chapter three is saying that there's actually been a declaration because of that sin and all have been declared guilty. And chapter four begins to lay the foundation of some deep roots that we need another declaration, a declaration of righteousness. 
that we know as justification, and it shows that even Abraham, the believer, was justified through his declaration of faith, not by his works. And chapter 5 breaks down what that theology of justification is all about. Chapter 6 now shows that now that we've been declared justified, not guilty, what our new union with Jesus looks like. Chapter 7 begins to show that even though we have this union with Christ within us, there are still two different natures that are at war. And chapter 8 begins to show us what that new nature looks like and what it looks like to live a life that is now free in the spirit as opposed to corrupted in the flesh. Chapter 9 shows the election that brought us into this great kingdom of Jesus. And chapters 10 and 11 continue to further that thought. Chapters 12 show you the gifts that we've now been given as people who are blood bought by the price of Jesus. So if you understood that, and we're able to do something simple like that, that would help you as an imprint or a layout to put over the book of Romans. But not all chapters break down so neatly. Not all books break down so neatly. So a chapter, if you remember, there were no chapter divisions when the Bible was written. It's not like these guys wrote these books and said, ooh, chapter one was good. Let me move on to chapter two. And there were no verse divisions. Those are put there later to be able to help us, to be able to have common Bible study together, to be able to say, hey, when you're talking about this section of Jeremiah, I'm also talking about the same set. And to be able to have a plumb line to be able to look at, to be able to understand. But they were put there for our help not as a rule. A chapter does not have to have a theme, but if you had to have some idea of themes that are repeated throughout the 10th chapter of Ecclesiastes, I have a little chart up here because I'm not going to be going into all of these. Um, the first big thought would be that there is a deep cost to folly. And throughout the book, we've explained how wisdom and folly have been juxtaposed against each other. Uh, a second theme that's related would be foolishness makes life more difficult. Um, and then we see that your foolishness can even make life more difficult for others. Anybody ever experienced that where your life has maybe been um, a little bit hardened by the folly of somebody else, not something that you've done, but their folly has crept into your life? Anybody ever experienced the other side of that coin where you're the fool in the equation? And your folly has made, um, yeah, I can identify with that one. Um, so the last one would be to realize that there's no such thing as victimless folly, even if the victim is yourself. And I'm going to do something uncharacteristic for me this morning. Um, it felt weird putting it together, but I, I, th I think it's the right thing to do. I'm going to be focusing on just one main verse because it's really, really important, especially as I consider the time of year for us as a body when many families enter back into the autumn, which for a lot of you is a time where life just hits fast forward, and as soon as September hits, it's go, and you're off to the races. Well, with that in mind, look with me at verse 10. It says, the iron, or in many translations, the axe is blunt. Axe will be the word that I'll be using. So when you see here iron, it's talking about an axe. I'll be using those two terms interchangeably. And one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So 
What Solomon is doing here is he's warning about the dangers of swinging a dull axe. This is intended to be a metaphor. But like all good metaphors in the poetic books in the Bible, and in any poetry really when metaphorical language is used, it draws meaning from something that can be taken quite literally, even though it's used figuratively. Remember, back then there was no oil or gas or electric furnaces or stoves, so you couldn't just go down to the local store and buy a bundle of firewood. If you wanted to warm yourself, if you wanted to heat your house, if you wanted to to cook your food, you had to go down into the woods with an axe, and you had to chop down that wood yourself, and if you didn't, you didn't have any wood. And this would have been an illustration that everybody that was hearing this text would have been familiar with. And having a cheap, dull, blunted edge on the axe is something that would take a necessary job and turn it into a more laborious job, a difficult job, more difficult than it needed to be. And you didn't just go and buy a new axe when your axe head got dull. If you want proof of that, just go take a perusal through Second Kings chapter 6 when you leave here. And if you're familiar with the story of the prophet Elisha, when the servant drops the axe head in the river, what happens? He, he bugs out. The actual phrase after he drops is, oh no! Like he, he bugs because the axe head goes flying. It's kind of a big deal because you didn't just go down to Home Depot and throw down your visa and buy a new axe. If you lost your axe, you lost the ability to cook for yourself, to care for yourself, to heat yourself, and to be able to do basic necessities that were important in life. So you took care of your axe. And if it got dull, guess what? You didn't get the call out of work. You still had to do the work. You still had to cook for yourself. You still had to do the things that the axe required, but it just became exponentially more difficult. But... This is a book of poetry, and it's meant metaphorically. So he's not really talking about an axe here. What he's doing is he's using a very common illustration that would have been understood by all to be able to make a point. And that's what good poetry is able to do. It takes a common shared image that we all share in this experience and share in the understanding of the imagery and uses it to make a broader point that would be familiar with the intended audience. And in proverb-type poetry, it takes the shared imagery and uses that point to make a principle. So what's the principle? I'm going to lay it out to you right on the beginning, and then we're going to begin to dissect it. The principle is that the tool that you're using to get work done is dull and blunted, then you're going to be less effective and your production will go downward while your effort continues to increase just to produce the same or a lesser amount of work. I spent a pretty good amount of time setting up all of that and setting up the principle, but we get this, right? I mean, this isn't something that I probably needed to spend that much time to set up. I I think we all understand this principle, at least in theory, right? But my guess is that even though we understand it in theory, that every single one of us has had a season 
or is currently in a season of just spinning your wheels. And there is a difference between knowing and knowing. I can know that my car will run for longer and will run better if I get the oil changed every 3,000 miles. But if the only time I change my oil is when there's smoke coming out of my engine and the dashboard is lighting up like a Christmas tree, then do I really know that truth? I can know that I function better as a human, as a friend, as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, when I get an appropriate amount of sleep. But if every night I'm up too late because of bad habits and then I'm awake too early, then do I really know this to be true? There's a difference between knowing and knowing. So why am I devoting a whole message to one verse? Well, a couple of reasons. Because this is a universal truth. Everything breaks down. Not just your stuff. Your mind, your bodies, your capacities, That's what all of chapter 12 is going to be. It's going to be about the breaking down of the capacities as we continue to age. And if we continue to use your broken stuff with the same intensity that caused it to break down, the results will begin to be diminishing returns. That's the principle. That's why it's so important to extrapolate this. It's also important because even though we know this to be true, we don't always know this to be true. It's important because we usually view stopping to sharpen the axe as a luxury rather than a necessity. Frankly, it's important because there are a lot of people out there who just continue to swing a dull axe thinking that they're better off to just continue to grind down the dull axe than to stop and sharpen that what God has given you to use. So I have a plea to please get this because it really matters. And this really matters because it's really important. So what are the ways that an axe begins to get dull? What was Solomon hoping that they would get out of the truth. Well, in sticking with the metaphor that Solomon uses, it's pretty simple. An axe dulls down from overusage. Or more specific, an axe dulls down when you keep swinging it and swinging it and never take the time to stop and sharpen it. And let me point out something by way of preface that's really important. In the metaphor that Solomon is using, the axe is getting dull from doing that which is it, is it is intended to do. Or more specifically, the axe grows dull from being used for its intended use. The dulling comes when it's doing what it was intended to do and being used how it was intended to be used without taking the time to stop and sharpen it when it gets dull from normal, healthy usage. So why stop and make that caveat before I continue to go along? Because this is an area where pop psychology has run amok and has even infiltrated the church. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with somebody who's just tired and worn out and somebody responds by telling them that they must be doing something that they were not intended to do or that they are not being put to their intended use. Now, are there people out there who are blunt and dull 
because they're living outside of God's design and exerting the bulk of their efforts outside of God's intended use. Absolutely. Of course there are. But I would say that it's more prevalent in sticking with the imagery that is being used within this passage, people getting dull, blunted, and tired, and worn out because they're actually doing what God intended for them to do, but they're doing so without God's designs of rest, Sabbath, and taking time to sharpen the axe. So they continue to just grind away at a stump while using a dull axe. Folks, we are finite beings. We get dull. We get tired. Even Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, got tired and worn out. And he was always in sync with the Father's will and with his purpose. It's just a question of what are we going to do when it happens. So how does an axe get dull? Again, you know this already. This message is going to be spent telling you things that you already know, but I guarantee you that for some of you, this is exactly what you need to be hearing today. At least it was for me. An axe gets dull when we keep swinging it and swinging it and swinging it and never actually stopping to think about the production that we're getting out of it. Or we then begin to say things like, production is down, so I just need to swing the axe harder and then production will be what it used to be. Or, if we've already tried that and exhausted it, I'm already swinging the ax harder, but I can produce what I used to produce if I just swing the ax a little bit longer. So to make it relevant to your life and to mine, how do we get a dull ax? You look at a season of results, and you compare it to the results that you're currently seeing, and you begin just starting to spin your wheels. And there's this fear and insecurity that often accompany that when you're seeing a downturn in production. You ever feel that, where you start to say, man, it used to be that I was making this amount of money, or it used to be that when we did this, this many people would show up. And you start to make excuses, because to not make excuses means that you have to sit there and say, wow, I am actually feeling fear inside. And it's not comfortable for me to look at that fear or to admit that I'm feeling fear. So it's a lot easier for me to just quiet that voice of fear and just swing harder. But rather than acknowledging the fear, you begin to just put your head down and start slugging it out. Maybe if I just work harder, I will get the results that I used to get. Maybe if I just stay at the office a couple of hours longer, I can catch up with that mound of unfinished business. Then I'll begin to see my production increase again. And that is a scary place to be in because more often than not, the first things that begin to go out the window, and hear me on this, folks, please hear me on this because this is not theory. This is stuff I see all the time. And by all the time, I mean every single day. The first things that go out the window are, I don't have time to take a real Sabbath rest. I have to work. I can't afford to tithe. 
I have to pay for my stuff. I don't have time for fellowship. I barely have time for all the work and responsibility that I have in front of me. I can't serve in any area of ministry. I have barely enough time to complete what's required of me within a day. And I'd like to offer you some encouragement before we move on to the next part of this point. And I promise that there are some here who are in this rut and that you're tired because you're human. And in an assembly this size, there are people that this is going to be addictive of. So first, by way of encouragement, you don't have to choose to live this way. God loves you too much to just sit in heaven and let you continue to spin your wheels. Second, you have the same amount of hours in your day that everyone else does, and contrary to a convoluted way of thinking, you don't need any more hours than the ones that you have. Third, if you look back to the most productive times in your life, they didn't likely come from times when you were ignoring God's priorities. Fourth, you're not going to accomplish more by living outside of God's design. And what you do accomplish when you're living outside of God's design and God's priorities are going to begin to take on an increasing sense of meaningless. That's the whole theme of that book. That's the word havel that's just repeated over and over. It's striving after the wind. And, and what would you do with it even if you caught it? You can't take a wind and stick it in your pocket. You can't quantify a wind, so why continue to strive after it? Meaninglessness of meaninglessness, as Solomon continues to say throughout the book. And fifth, God's grace does not merely extend to your salvation, but he also saved you from spinning your wheels, and he gives you the grace that you need to live within his design. So let's get down to some diagnostics. What are some signs that maybe you're swinging a dull axe? He gives you the answer right here in verse 10. Look with me again. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, what does it say? He must use more strength. So you're using the same amount or you're using more strength than you used to use to produce the same or lesser results. When you don't take time to sharpen the axe, you still have to get the wood that you need, but now it requires more strength to be able to do so. So what are the ways that you might be swinging a dull axe? You're working harder and harder just to produce the same or less. You're tired, but not that good kind of tired. Look, there's, tired is not a bad thing. And... There is nothing more rewarding, at least very few things that I would consider more rewarding than that feeling of when you have worked and it has been work where you know that you are in line with God's priorities, you know that you're in line with God's design, that feeling of, I know that I left everything on the field and there is nothing left for me in this tank. Man, it is... It's so satisfying. The kind of tired where, oh, man, I need a good nap. I need a good night's rest. Maybe even I need, I need a, a vacation. But that's not the kind of tired I'm talking about here. 
I'm talking about the kind of tired that is not satisfying, but another diagnostic is that tired has grown into weariness. Another one would be that the fruit is withering and you continue to grow more and more fatigued. So your heart begins to get crispy. Joy begins to be replaced with jadedness and an increasing cynicalness. And your knee-jerk reaction begins to be less and less of a spirit-filled reaction and more of a fleshly response. The next would be you find yourself spending less time in the places that you used to to sharpen the axe. I can't take time to actually pause and sharpen the axe because I have too much work to get done, right? You ever been in that place? There's no way that I could possibly stop progress because progress is a wheel of performance that I can't possibly get off, so I need to live life like a hamster because anything else would be insanity, right? And at that point, the vicious cycle is upon you. We can call this vicious cycle if you want. We can call it maintenance mode. But at that point, I'd say you've, you've probably blown past maintenance mode. You're in barely maintaining any longer mode. And besides, brothers and sisters, the reason why I was telling you that this message is just so heavy on my heart did God really send his son to die for you so that you could live in maintenance mode? Is that really what Christ redeemed us for? Is so that we could just barely maintain in this life? And let me just stop and encourage you. Each one of these points, I'm going to stop and encourage you because there's no sense of just beating down tired people. That's what the Pharisees did. That's actually what Jesus would often battle with the Pharisees about the most often. They would take these tired people and their solution was, you're tired because you're not doing enough. You're not religious enough. You're not working hard enough. And Jesus thought that was rubbish. So I want to just stop and encourage you and tell you, brothers and sisters, it does not have to be this way. God loves you too much to expect this to be indicative of your lifestyle. Remember, this is the same God who said what Rich Cromwell read during our time of worshiping and song, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is gentle and my burden is light. You don't have to be spinning your wheels. I remember when that verse really just came to bear on me when I was planting a church years ago and I had a church planting coach and I was just fried beyond the place of exhaustion and my heart was beginning to grow bitter and I called up the church planting coach and I was just like, why did you never tell me that this was going to be the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life? Why did you never tell me? that this was going to be killing me. And he was like, man, you sound weary. I was like, yeah, you think? And this guy was just one of those just old wise men that just let out enough slack and just yanked me in. I am, I am weary, Dave. Whew, you sound heavy. Yeah, I'm heavy! Oh, well, Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. He said that he doesn't give heaviness that he doesn't give weariness. So let me ask you, are you walking in Jesus' burden or are you walking in yours? 
shut up, Dave. That's that's not what I want to hear. Commiserate with me. (laughs) Tell tell me I'm right. Baby me. Tell me this this is hard. So he sat and deconstructed with me all of these areas where I was living in my flesh, thinking that it was done in the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to keep spinning your wheels. So let's look at the wisdom part of this verse, because it's not really good news, is it, to just say you're tired. You probably knew that when you woke up this morning, didn't you? Um, It says at the end of the verse that even though you need to use more strength with the blunted edge, wisdom helps one succeed. That's what the last verse is talking about. It's just taking time to sharpen the axe. Solomon's laying out two paths here. He's saying either you can continue to spin your wheels to eventually produce less and less and less, or you can actually stop the insanity and take time to sharpen the axe. Let me be just really frank with you because I suppose I haven't up until this point, so that's why I feel the need to say that. Um, There's moments in every single one of us where we have to stop and we have to survey the situation and we have to ask, what's more effective here? To just keep grinding it out, to just keep chopping away and chopping away and to just keep grinding it out with a dull edge or to actually stop and sharpen the axe. And the scary thing is we live in a society where people have become addicted to swinging the axe and never asking why they're growing tired until God puts you in a place where you have no choice but to stop. That's scary, isn't it? When something like, wow, my blood pressure is 3,000 over (laughs) 2,000. I'm not a doctor in case you could. Is that high? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Joe. <laughs> when you're like, man, if, if I pick up that axe one more time, it will kill me. The scary thing is, is that people have to get brought to that point often before they actually stop to consider what they're addicted to. That's why so many people are walking around beyond the point of exhaustion. The course correction in this passage, what Solomon is offering to you, he lays out the red pill and the blue pill, and what he's telling you is get out of the matrix, stop living your life in crisis mode, and take the time you need to sharpen the ax. I feel like more and more people that I meet are just beyond the place of redlined because they're living in crisis mode for so, so long. I mean, do you get that? Does anybody else, like just as you're driving around, you just do something simple, like you accidentally veer into another lane and you see the person next to you with a vein coming out in their forehead and they're ready to kill you, and you're just like, what happened in your day? That you're just so redlined, that you're just ready to go and drop hands because you don't like my bumper sticker or something. I mean, people are seriously that, like, bing, all the time. And it's exhausting. And you know what else is exhausting? Some of the people want to get off the merry-go-round, and they don't know how to get off. And that's pretty scary, isn't it? But you know what's even more scary? 
most people don't even stop to think about the fact that they're on a merry-go-round or the fact that God wants more for them than to live a life on a merry-go-round. And that is not just exhausting, that's scary exhausting. Another thing that's worth addressing here is that people often fall into the fact, and I guarantee you every single one of you has fallen into this at one point or another, stopping to sharpen the ax is a luxury that I can't afford right now. It's not a necessity. And I would encourage you that Jesus Christ seemed to think differently. That's why you read passages like Jesus was asleep on a boat. And the disciples, Jesus, wake up! Help us swing our dull axes! Don't you care? Don't you care that we're swinging dull axes? Yeah, I care. I care so much that I'm resting so I could properly attend to your souls. Or at the end of Mark chapter 1 when it says that he was healing these great many people and there were people from all over the land that were coming to find Jesus. And, and Peter comes up. I'm assuming it was Peter. I think it says the disciples. But Peter was just usually uh, good for this. Uh, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. And then Jesus gives that very Jesus kind of answer. Well, good. Then let's go to the next town. <laughs> Jesus, John chapter 6 you're at the height of your popularity. Good. Do you want to leave too? <laughs> Jesus seemed to believe that sharpening the axe was a necessity and not a luxury. So, like each of the other points, let me stop to encourage you for a moment. God created you to need to stop from time to time. That's why he demonstrated the seventh day that he stopped and rested for the Sabbath. God didn't need to rest. He's the God of Israel that neither sleeps nor slumbers, as it tells us in the Psalms. He didn't need to rest. He rested to demonstrate to you that you could and to show a pattern that we were created for. Brothers and sisters, stopping is not a sign of weakness. That is your birthright as a child of God. And you can amen that point but do you really believe it in your hearts? And I only ask because I know in my heart I lose sight of this reality way too often and way too easy. So along with encouraging you, I want to do a little gospel work in your hearts before we finish up and ask some questions. If you're in the rut of exhaustion, why is it that you think, don't think that you're worthy of being able to stop to rest? Is there a disconnect? Really, ask your hearts this. Like if you've zoned out, zone back in for a second. Is there a disconnect between how you've received the gospel and how you apply the gospel to your lives? And what I mean by that is we believe that we're saved by grace, not of ourselves, that no amount of spinning our wheels could have ever worked our way into God's redemption and salvation. In fact, it wasn't until we stopped spinning our wheels and said, God, I can't, so you have to. God, I'm unable to, but you're more than able to. God, I can't, but I trust that Jesus did what I could not. Jesus, I trust that when you said it is finished, that you meant that there was nothing that I could do to add to what you have done for me and that what you have done, you have done unto the uttermost. So do you stop? Do you think that God loved you 
In that way, when you were, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, an enemy of God, but stopped loving you in that way now that you are a child of God. That's the gospel work I want to do on your hearts right now. Do you ever stop to think that the gospel is proof that you can stop swinging your silly little axe? Think about this. Think about this imagery. If I sent my son out into the backyard with a little toy axe and told him to go and chop down some firewood, there's little six-year-old Calvin out there just grinding away at a stump and he's swinging and I'm standing there behind him and he's looking back to see if I'm looking to see if his dad sees what he's doing and if his dad is proud of him and I'm sitting there staring at him with delight in my son but after a while he grows weary because of course he would grow weary, right? Because six-year-olds don't typically chop down trees. But as, as, as he grows weary, he's sitting there still just swinging that ax but not only that, we're talking exhaustion here, folks, exhaustion that I think some of you could probably identify with. Now he's starting to cry, and blisters are forming on his little hands, and he's growing to hate what he's doing. Ever been there? And he's growing to resent me as his father for just sitting there and watching him struggle. And imagine as he's swinging his little toy, his father is standing behind him, and at any point, with just one swing... I could take down that tree. Would I be a good father to just sit and watch my son continue to hurt himself and resent my fatherhood for allowing it? I wonder if many of us are exhausted because you think that you're stronger than you actually are and you lose sight of the fact that you're really just a kid wielding a silly little axe. Brothers and sisters, your father loves you. You don't have to keep swinging a dull axe. Maybe for some of you, that's the application this morning. That's it. You just needed someone to remind you of what you knew already. I'd imagine that some of us are probably more stubborn than others, like me, and you need somebody to actually grab you by the shoulders and look you in the eye and say, stop! Stop it for a second! Would you just slow down and put down the axe for crying out loud? Rest. It doesn't have to be this way. So before I move on to my last point, I just want to put down my axe for another word of encouragement. Your father loves you. Stop. Put down the axe. Take a breather. It's worth it. You're worth it. How about that? You're worth it. So let me close with some practical stuff, some ways to sharpen the axe. Like the greatest encouragement that I could probably give you is do not look at the production that you once had and think, wow, what can I do to get back to there? But look back to the times when your heart was most pliable to Jesus and say, what was I doing back then to produce what I was producing without being so weary in the process? So how do we sharpen the ax again? You know these things. You're built for fellowship. You're built with fellowship with your Savior. You're built with fellowship through him, through his word. You're built for fellowship with his people. You are built for communion with Jesus and with his body. These things sharpen the ax, and you are built to need rest. So let me give you some pastoral application 
because we don't have to keep grinding it out. So the first application on this upcoming Labor Day, we need to actually take the time to rest for your labor. I was so excited with Labor Day coming up, and there's nothing special about Labor Day. I know that it's not some biblical feast or holiday, but it's a really good principle. It's certainly not less than Christian, that's for sure. I remember early on when I was in seminary, we started having classes in August. I was thinking through this this week, and my, I found my hands clenching because I was getting just so irate as I thought through young, formative Eric that was so much more innocent. And at the time, I realized we were having class on Labor Day. I didn't want to have class on Labor Day. Young Eric had a hottie at home named Marcy, and I wanted to go visit my girlfriend. Um, so I asked my professor, is this like an oversight on the schedule? And maybe you're using last year's um, paperwork. And he said, I'll never forget it. We are God's special forces. When others slow down, we labor all the more. Thinking back, it fills me with rage. This man was entrusted with young hearts and minds and allowed his own insecurity and inability to rest in the gospel to warp the young hearts and minds and to take what he called Christian work ethic and wrap it in idolatry. What a great testimony to show the world that does not have the hope of a savior that Jesus Christ died and made satisfaction in our place and said it is finished and gave us the greater rest spoken of in the book of Hebrews to say, you know what, you can and you should rest, but I can't rest because Jesus died for me and said it is finished. It doesn't even get the gospel right, man. You're not God's special forces. Jesus is. That's why he had to send Jesus, is because we're a lousy bunch of special forces, aren't we? Number two, realize that a sharp, small axe wielded well will take down the mightiest of trees. There is this old song, it was a slave song that the slaves used to sing to be able to rally, and, and it came from this verse, and they would look at the master and they say, you think you're a big, big tree, but we're a small, small ax, and we're coming to cut you down because we're sharp, sharp in to cut you down. And what they realized was that even the largest of oaks could be taken down by the smallest of sharp axes rightly wielded. And we live in an evangelical culture today where everyone wants to be the mighty oak. And we're watching God take down mighty oaks and uproot them on a seemingly daily basis. When God is calling his people to the priesthood of all believers to just be an army wielding some small, sharp axes, even the biggest tree comes down in the presence of a small axe sharpened and wielded rightly. Third, trust yourself to believe that Jesus cares way more about who you are in him than what you do for him. Look, Jesus didn't die for what you could do for him. You know that everything that the world has done in Jesus' name that Jesus could have accomplished like that, and it would not have required his blood spilt. It would not have required the father to crush his son. He could have done it himself, and it would have been far easier. Jesus died for who you are, 
and who you're becoming, not for what you will do. And lastly, just stop it. That's my application. Just stop it. Just stop for a minute. Rest. Put down the axe. Jesus did. We're going to take communion now. Communion is a reminder that we're able to be still and know that he's God. And guess what happens when you're still? He'll still be exalted amongst the nations. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are the mighty one. Lord, that we can sleep and slumber because you never do. Lord, that we can rest because you purchased that rest at such a great cost. Lord, that we can trust because you're always trustworthy. God, I pray that even just one person today would stop spinning their wheels and abide. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.